Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now lately we've been taking a couple breaks from format to interview some of the icons in the industry, people that I grew up admiring, uh, that are absolute legends. We had a chance last week to talk to June Brigman and then to uh, Roy Thomas, and I am so honored to have uh, Mr. Steve Englehart here with us today. Steve, thank you for being here with us. Glad to be here. Let's uh, let's take just a moment to have each of us introduce ourselves. I also have uh, an old colleague of mine, uh, Anthony, is here with us today. Um, let's uh, let, let's start with you, Anthony. Tell us briefly about who you are and your work with Marvel, and then uh, Steve. Let's have you do the same. Just introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about where you come from and what people might know you from. Uh, so, Anthony, do you want to start? Sure, definitely. Uh, my name is Anthony Flamini. I freelance for Marvel from approximately uh, 2004 to 2011. Uh, stuff I did during that time were uh, the Planet Hulk, Gladiator Guidebook, uh, Thor and Hercules, Encyclopedia Mythologica, Civil War Files, Civil War Battle Damage Report. I did a series of uh, three tie-in books for the uh, Peter David adaptation of Stephen King's Dark Tower series when Marvel did that in comic format. And I know this is a, uh, I know this is an X book podcast. So I guess the most X related thing I've done was uh, more X adjacent was uh, Chris, Cla- Chris Claremont's uh, revival of Big Hero 6 in 2009. I did a lot of the original back matter for that after the comic. I worked with actually Jordan White, who was, I think, like a one-year associate editor at the time. Yeah. And now he's head of the X-Books. So uh, he's come a long way since then. But uh, yeah, I worked with that with him. Yeah. We interviewed Jordan a few weeks ago. Now, Anthony and I worked together on the handbooks for uh, several years way back when. I think we've only met once, if I'm remembering right. In yeah, person. back to San Diego Comic Con, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I was looking at my IMDb for Marvel the other day, and there was like 85 books on the list. I was like, geez, we did a lot of stuff back then. It was uh, yeah, yeah. kind of crazy. Uh, and then, Steve, tell, tell people a little bit about your history with Marvel and what people might know you from most. Well, I wrote pretty much everything, um, including the X-Men when the X-Men didn't have a comic um, as guest stars in other books I was writing. Um, You know, I don't know. I mean, I wrote Avengers, Captain America, Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer. Uh, I went over to the other side and wrote Batman and Justice League. And then, you know, many other things. Some of your work uh, is among my very favorite top, top stories of all time for Marvel. I've been a Marvel fan for decades now. Uh, Your original run on Defenders and particularly your original run on Doctor Strange are just iconic and beloved to me. This being an X-Men podcast, we won't take a lot of time to talk about those, but I could pick your brain about Doctor Strange and Defenders for two hours alone. Uh, What an honor to have you here. Um, Steve, to start off, tell us a little bit about how you ended up working at Marvel at the start. Now, you you have your training in psychology initially, correct? Yep, yep. How did you end up at Marvel in the first place? Uh, Well, I had a degree in psychology, but I didn't want to be a psychologist. I I wanted to be a comic book guy. Um, I got interested in comics. I mean, I read them as a kid and then outgrew them, but then got interested in the Marvel stuff um, when I was in college getting my degree. Um, and when I got out of the college, I was taken by the army because it was that time, uh, when I got out of the army, I went to New York and, and started working as Neil Adams assistant, art assistant, and then got a editorial job at Marvel, the lowest level at the time, you know, um, and one day they offered me a thing to write. And I wrote it and I liked writing it and they liked what I wrote. And so then they gave me more writing and then I was a writer. I may have my, I may have my uh, chronology slightly off, but that first project you worked on was Beast in the Amazing Adventures, wasn't it? First superhero concept. Yeah. I mean, in those days, Marvel would start you out. Uh, if they, if you were, if they were grooming you to be a writer, you did romance and you did Westerns and monsters, stuff like that, non-superhero stuff. So that if you were terrible, you wouldn't screw up Iron Man, um, but uh, they liked the run-up. So then, yeah, the Beast was the first thing that I did. Uh, so we've been analyzing the '60s comics on the podcast primarily, and people are surprised to see Beast in his human form. <laughs> but you got to write him blue and furry. Tell us about your initial work with the Beast. And so, a side question there: one of the most astonishing things you did during that run was bring Patsy Hellcat or Patsy Walker, the Hellcat back right. into the books. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your work then. 
Well, I mean, they gave me the beast. And so that was my shot to, to actually write Marvel superheroes. They, Roy and Jerry Conway had decided to make him gray and furry. Um, uh, they thought since the X-Men book had failed, um, which always astonishes me because it was Roy Thomas and Neil Adams at the end, Jim Steranko was doing stuff in there. They couldn't sell that book. And so it died. And so, but nobody ever, you know, characters never completely go away in comics. And so they had this idea of trying the beast. They were having good success with like werewolf by night and Dracula and stuff. They were getting, getting traction with monster books. So they thought, well, if we make the beast look more like a werewolf, then, you know, that might be a thing. So they did the first issue. Jerry wrote it, Roy plotted it, I guess, whatever. And then I took over with the second issue. And so I inherited the gray and furry beast. But I had read all the X-Men books to that point. I'd read everything to that point. And so I knew that he was smart and, and you know, uh, the big brain guy. Um, I made him a little, a little looser, I guess, than he had been. Um, uh, but anyway, you know, I wanted to write the best beast I could. And then halfway through the sales were not really showing much. So they, then they made him blue and furry. Um, they thought that looked scarier than gray. Um, um, and you know, the sales still didn't improve, but I guess they liked what I was doing enough to give me more stuff. And, and so, as I mentioned earlier, I then sort of used the X-Men as guest stars in all my other books while they didn't have their own book. Were you a big X-Men fan at the time? I was, um, I, you know, I, again, once I got into Marvel, I got into everything. I mean, I read the, the, I read Millie the model and I read, you know, two gun kid and, and all that stuff too. But, um, I, you know, yeah, I, I read the X-Men and I, and I, since this is an X-Men podcast, I'll just say my theory has always been that, that Avengers and X-Men debuted the same month as bi-monthly books. And then pretty quickly, the Avengers became a monthly book starring all of your favorite heroes. And I think that just cast the X-Men into being sort of a second tier book after that, even though it was Lee and Kirby for the first 11 issues and, and all that. Um, so I always thought the X-Men was, was better than its general reputation in, you know, amongst comic fans and so forth. And, and so, yeah, I was with them all the way through when they started doing things where everybody had his own issue. And then, you know, I mean, where they broke up the team, they did everything they could to try to do that thing, but it, but it never, never really got anywhere. Um, which was always amazing, as I said to me. But yes, to answer your question, I was an X Men fan. Well, uh, the uh, the focusing on the Beast for just a second. The most ridiculous plotline back then: he was furry, but he would put a latex mask. <laughs> I did, on. and that was Jerry Conway. <laughs> Jerry Conway came up with that. I run around, run around posing as a human. It was uh, it was pretty fantastic. Anthony, have you read that original Amazing Adventures run? I have, oh, decades ago. But yeah, yeah, I've definitely read it before. What is some of your favorite works of uh, Stevens? Uh, mine, per personally, uh, I love, I know a lot of the books he didn't start, uh, stay on, like Shang-Chi. It was like, what, three issues before it got taken over. But just the introduction, I thought was uh, really, you know, something that Marvel hadn't seen before at that point. You know, I know the history like you and I think it was, uh, uh, who was it? The artist on that. It was uh, uh, Jim Starlin. Jim Starlin, that's right. You were at your house watching. Uh, uh, the Jim, the David Carradine Kung Fu uh, yeah. series, and you got the idea, hey, let's get into the genre and like make it into comics. So, I mean, just the introduction of that, that kind of a subgenre of comics was very cool for the time, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I won't go off on that because this is an X-Men podcast, mm. but uh, uh, that was that first issue was one of my favorite issues. Uh, I even colored mm. it. I was so mm. into it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we had, you know, we wanted to do something that was different from what the rest of Marvel was. I mean, we liked mm -hmm. the rest of Marvel, but we wanted to like do this thing that wasn't. And mm -hmm. and there was there was a lot of resistance in the beginning. Roy didn't think much of the concept. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh yeah, we persevered and and 
I, this is a weird, it's weird for me who just sort of did this stuff, right? I mean, it was just things you do. It's like, mm -hmm. this is what you do. Um, and now 50 years later, it's, uh, you know, it's history and it's, you know, and it is what it is. But I went to the Shang-Chi uh, premiere in Los Angeles mm -hmm. uh, when it, you know, last summer. And I came out afterwards and stood in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard and there were all these people dressed up and, you know, this whole Hollywood Boulevard was shut down and they had all this stuff going on. And somebody said to me, do you realize this is all because of you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had never really thought of it that way. But yeah, I mean, you know, Starlin and I decided, hey, let's try this thing. And then, you know, now it's a movie and it's going to be another movie and it's going to be all that stuff. So it's funny. Um, I, I find my comic book career to be funny in many ways, mm -hmm. you know. Funny, ironic. Huh? <laughs> I said funny, ironic. Yeah, well, both. I mean, you know, it's it's just nobody did that stuff with the idea that it was going to become the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, you know, uh, all that stuff. I mean, we just did it because we love comics and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we did this month's issue, then we did next month's issue. I mean, mm -hmm. and, you know, I was doing three or four different titles at a time, but, you know, it was all just doing a fun thing for to entertain people at the moment the idea that it would you know that it would become canonical and historical and all that mm -hmm. stuff is is uh, i find that funny yeah <laughs> i i agree like i like how uh just things evolve over time now you know with all the influence of the other like movies video games how a concept you did can like it's almost like a a biological system that evolves and like becomes something different people add to it yep. so just Take take for instance something you wrote that I actually had a hand in years later was a uh, Avengers one twelve I think you did it with uh Don Heck yeah was, the, the Lion God was introduced uh -huh. Uh -huh. it was like a rival god to the Panther God in Wakanda yeah. you know, to kind of stamp out Black Panther I think Thor eventually uh shot him into another dimension years later we introduced him as uh the Sekhmet the Lion God from Egypt we gave him that identity mm -hmm. and uh, then in the Captain America Civil War movie they introduced black panther and he referenced both fast the panther god and Sekhmet, the lion god who mm -hmm. was a reference to your original lion god back in 19 1975 whenever that was that story came out so or like 72 or three yeah yeah uh, probably uh, 73 you're right 73. <coughs> there's so a, just how it changes like that there's yeah. a long, oh i'm sorry go ahead Stephen. no i just oh, i'm just agreeing with him it is it is it does mutate over time because mm -hmm. i mean you know i write my stuff but at some point I'm going to stop writing it. And next month, somebody else is going to start writing it and they're going to have their own idea and they're all, you know, they're going to, and then they'll quit. And then, you know, after, after all these years, um, all these things have, have grown and mutated and, and, and changed. And yet they're still alive. They're still here. You know, yeah. while doing this podcast, I've almost started to think of the X-Men as like a TV series that's been running for 200 seasons. And you're always finding ways to go back to the beginning and add pieces and, you were you were coming into Marvel during a time when they were really expanding, and you yeah. treated you treated the source material or the stuff that came before with such reverence. But you added new spins, new characters, new storylines. Your run on Avengers for that five years in the nineteen seventies is a really impressive body of work that really revolutionized the Avengers. And I think a lot of times, even now, when people think of the Avengers, they think of your Avengers. They don't think of the original but they think of what you did with the team, the Celestial Madonna saga and the Avengers Defenders War and some of the really iconic things you did. Uh, how was how was your work at the Avengers at the time? What were some of your favorite stories you told? Well, I really liked the Avengers Defenders uh, clash, as I called it. Um, it was because it was a challenge as a, as a young writer. It's like one thing to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. But it was another thing to figure out, OK, who's going to fight who? How is it going to fit into a larger story? Uh, you know, uh, all these things that I hadn't had to face before. Um, uh, and so I thought it came I thought it worked really well, but I also really enjoyed doing it. You know, again, the, the process of it as a writer, which I was just you know, finding my way um, in those early days. Um, the Celestial Madonna saga, saga certainly. Um, um, and then uh, right at the end, 
of my run, George Perez came on and I did the, the whole time travel thing with Kang. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I really liked the idea that Kang, you could spend five issues beating Kang and then he could go away for 10 years and come back in the next issue. And you're still licking your wounds and he's had all this time to go do stuff. I thought that was a really intriguing concept. And, and the whole thing about going into the old West, the Cowboys and, and you know, Two Gun Kid uh the, that i was aware of um again it was just you know trying to be trying to i you know i mean i knew what i liked when from reading stuff and and i had an idea what the audience liked if it wasn't exactly what i liked but i had an idea because i was at marvel seeing all the books being done so I was every issue I was trying to give you what you what would you would like, you know, trying to find something that a comic book reader, as I understood it, would like. Um, and so that was fun for me because I'm thinking of things that I like that, you know, but it was, you know, but again, not it, I didn't do stuff just because I liked it. It was because I thought that it was something that comic book readers would like. And I was hoping that I was in tune with that, you know, but if I was, then I was having a good time. And, 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 um, as you say, I mean, I really had a reverence for the stuff. Uh, I, you know, it, it was only 10 years old when I got there. So everybody in the Avengers was Thor and Captain America and Iron Man. They were same guys, right? It was just up to me now to do something with them. Um, I liked continuity. Uh, I understand why continuity doesn't work after 60 years, but, you know, uh, at 10, at the 10 year mark, um, it was still relevant to, you know, to say, well, yeah, they met each other back in fantastic four, number 37. And that's why he doesn't like him or whatever. Um, it was that reality of the characters, which, you know, the fact that they could have relationships and have histories and so forth that, that made me like Marvel um, as much as I did. Um, and and so I just say, not forgetting what this podcast is about, the X-Men, I liked the X-Men and they had no books. So I made a point of like the X-Men guest star in Captain America, the X-Men guest star in the Bo in the Hulk. Because I wanted those people to continue to live, you know? The uh, the the workings in, and we'll eventually review those books directly on the podcast. We're doing it kind of chronologically, uh, and th those those guest appearances. Uh, your your work with the X Men was during a time when they weren't showing up anywhere else, and right. uh, and yeah, keeping those stories alive and keeping readers abreast of who these characters are and what they mean was really important. If you if I chose three characters from the X line that you had the biggest impact on, Beast is obviously the first one. Uh, yeah. Tell us tell us about your decision to bring him into the Avengers, which changed him uh, as, as far as the reader's experience of him for, for a very long time. Well, he had been my firstborn, right? I mean, I, I, I had an affection for the Beast and the series ended, you know, it was cut off because it wasn't selling, you know, but uh, the beast still existed. And, and when I got to the end of the celestial Madonna thing, when I, you know, done this vast galactic epic thing, but now it was time to rejuvenate the Avengers, which is what Avengers did. And I was looking around, you know, who should I get rid of? Who should I put in? And I just thought he's, you know, I, I think he's good. Um, in this case, the readership didn't warm up to his original thing so much. I mean, people like those stories, but, and particularly now that they've been around so long and people don't know that they didn't like them at the time. Right. right. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I, I thought, okay, if I'm reconstituting the Avengers now, I want to put in the beast. I, you know, I also had moon dragon. I had a, I had other people coming uh, and in fact, I mentioned those two because they were sort of polar opposites. And so they made, you know, and Patsy Walker came in, you know, as the Hellcat. Um, but yeah, I just, it was because, because I liked the beast and I had the ability, I don't know, I was the guy I could, I could put him in the Avengers if I wanted to. So I did. 
his friendship with Wonder Man is so beloved by so many. Uh, yeah. How did you play those two off each other? Well, I didn't actually, because Wonder Man, I introduced Wonder Man, reintroduced Wonder Man in my last issue. And then, and then, oh. and then I was gone. So it was Shooter, I guess, who okay, took over okay. the Avengers and then, and then, uh, um, you know, made them pals. Um, no, I had the Beast, but I didn't have Wonder Man during my run. We could also talk Moondragon. We, we talk queer characters and our love of queer characters. And she's the iconic bitchy lesbian to a lot of people, too, yeah. now in, in the books now. Yeah. <laughs> she's a lot of fun. Uh, now, another character you have left uh, indelible imprints on, and again, stories that are also being adapted into films and shows, is the Scarlet Witch. Uh, right. She, uh, she is so iconic to so many and so beloved, particularly since the Avengers movies and the WandaVision script, uh, both of which have taken some of your storylines and and put them into a media form that have people going back to the old books. Uh, your vision in the Scarlet Witch series uh, is another one where you take pieces from all over the uh, Marvel playground and you use all these different pieces, the Toad and the Witches and Magneto and all of these characters that show up. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us how you developed the character of the Scarlet Witch and what led into the choice to uh, marry her off to the vision and give them their own series for that year? Well, again, I inherited her in the Avengers. Um, and I thought Roy had done a great job with the vision and the Scarlet Witch. Um, uh, so I just wanted to, you know, take that and, and run with it. I, you know, um, but I give him credit for putting them together in the first place. Um, I just don't liked her. I, you know, I've had a, um, I would say I like everybody that I ever wrote, because I had to like figure out what is interesting about this person in order to make it happen. Um, but I do have an affection for, for ballsy women. Um, I, I liked Scarlet Witch. I liked Mockingbird later on, you know? Um, and so from the beginning, I mean, my first splash page in the Avengers is a full page shot of the Scarlet Witch saying, get out of here, <laughs> which is an interesting way to start uh, a run, but she was always, you know, she was ballsy and, and the vision was not, the vision was, you know, more placid about the, the things. And, and so in developing their relationship, um, you know, she took the lead a lot and, and, uh, so they just worked as a couple. I liked them as a couple and I liked her particularly, I liked him. All right. Fine, you know, but I mean, I like I liked her personality, and then um, they decided. Well, I went, I I quit comics at the end of the seventies. Um, the great thing about comics is you're writing a story every week, and the bad thing about comics is you're writing a story every week. Um, it, it's like after a while, your brain starts to turn to cheese, and I, you know, I. Dick Giordano once said to me, he was editor at Charlton at the time, later editor in chief at DC. He said, I'm really glad that my day job is as an anchor because you know every writer I've ever met burns out. And I thought as a guy who was just starting to write, I thought I'm not gonna do that. And so I was aware of it. And, and rather than just sort of plug away, plug away, plug away and become a hack, when I got tired of writing, I quit. So. I went off and did other stuff. I wrote a novel. I worked to work for Atari. I did all this stuff. And then when I came back to Marvel, they came up with all these ideas about, well, here's what you could do. You could write the West Coast Avengers and you could do a Vision Witch series. I'm like, sure, I'm, I'm good with all of that. So, um, but it was just like, go write a Vision Witch series. So Richard Howell, who was going to be the artist, and I sat down. And his girlfriend, Carol Kalish, was um, a honcho at Marvel. I forget what she did, actually, but she was, you know, she was in administration. But she was Rich's girlfriend, maybe, I think girlfriend, not wife. I'm not sure at this point. But anyway, they were a couple. And the three of us went out to dinner and started talking about stuff. And I came up with this idea. It's like, well, they, you know, they got married. I did marry them. What do people do after they get married? Well, they have kids, you know? And so they wanted a 12 issue series. And I thought that would be new for Marvel to have kids. I mean, Reed, Reed Richards had had a kid, but right. you didn't, 
you never heard anything about Franklin. He just was sort of around. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I took care of that later when I wrote the FF. But um, uh, I thought, well, this, you know, I got 12 issues. Takes nine months to have a baby. What if I did, you know, all these things came together. What if I did a thing that was keyed to the month every month, you know, and, and we took her through the whole pregnancy and at the end of it, she had the kids. Um, and Marvel in those days, you know, when I started writing, Roy said to me, you have to turn these books in on time every month and they have to sell. And if they don't do either one or both of those, then we'll just fire you and find somebody who can do that. Intense. Um, we don't, you know, I don't have time to edit all these books. You have to be in charge of it and you have to make it work. So I always took that as the basic thing. And so the flip side of that was you could do anything if it sold and if it, and if it came in on time that, you know, Roy was not. And then later the other editors, they weren't going to like try to micromanage. Then came Shooter, but I was, I had left when Shooter came and Shooter was a micromanager, but, Mm. um, uh, so, you know, I just said, well, I'm going to do this series where they have kids and, and everybody said, fine, do that. And so I did, you know, the, uh, the, the pace you took them through and the different areas of the Marvel universe you used in that series is so wonderful. And I'd encourage people to go back and read it's It's a lot of fun. Uh, let me just pick your brain on a couple things that you can say a lot or a little, uh, tell us about the revelation of Magneto being Pietro and Wanda's father. I don't think I did that. I think I think that was established. Um, if I'm I, remembering, if I'm remembering correctly, and I and I haven't done a, a recent review of this, Anthony, if you remember differently, I think me. there was two. I think there were two volumes of uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch. The initial volume was the Magneto father re- revelation. I think uh, Steve did the second volume where it was the marriage and uh, the kids. Yeah, it was probably Roger was Stern, writer. right? I think it was Stern. Yeah. Yeah. He did that. Uh, it, it was the second volume that Steve had. That I think it was like didn't the, the father was already established. Yeah. Yeah. So I used that, but I didn't create it. No. What was your perception of that relationship? Well, Magneto, you know, had been the bad guy. I mean, we've spent a lot of time over the years rehabilitating him and fleshing him out and giving him motivations and so forth. But in those days, he was, you know, he was still pretty much a bad guy. And, and that made for an interesting thing, being the father of, of, you know, people who were good guys. Um, but I don't know that I have anything else to say about that. Really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no. I, I, you, got, you got to make Magneto a grandpa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, again, in those days, we didn't have any other grandpas. So I don't know that that, I never, I never actually heard whether people liked that or not. I mean, when I got done with that series, I was done with that series. But um, yeah, well, I mean, how could Ian, what's his name? <laughs> the actor, the guy who plays him in the movies. Um, Ian McKellen? Ian McKellen, yeah. You know, how could Ian McKellen play him if he weren't a grandpa, right? So. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, and then uh, you also you also used Quicksilver quite extensively. Yeah, that, I did uh, not I did not like Quicksilver. You know, Quicksilver to me was an asshole, and and um, so you know I was building up this whole thing with they'd gotten him married to Crystal, but Crystal was a much nicer person than he was, and he was kind of a male chauvinist pig. You know, probably a racist. I mean, he had everything going on, and so um, I thought that's not a marriage that can happen. And so again, writing this thing, it's like, here's Wanda and the Vision with their happy marriage. Here's, you know, her brother and his wife in an unhappy marriage. Marvel later retconned that. They didn't, you know, I'm not sure why he got too mean or something. But uh, uh, in my, you know, in my time, in my run, um, I definitely thought Quicksilver was a guy who was not, I mean, he'd never been fun to be around necessarily, but uh, um, I just I just ran with the soap opera elements of that 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 he was mean to Crystal and Crystal didn't deserve it, and you know. and then uh, you wrote a story where she cheats on him, uh, and yeah, he, he kind of yeah. goes full on supervillain for a while. T- tell us that story. Well, just you know, again, she was Crystal was a stand up 
person and, and she was being treated badly. She'd made a bad decision getting married to this guy. Um, and so she met this real estate agent. It was just a guy, you know, it just could have been anybody, but it was somebody that she met who she vibed with. And, and, you know, that, that book, it had for 12 issues, it had about 14 themes in it. I mean, you know, there was the pregnancy, there was the soap opera, there was the supervillains, there was the, you know, I mean, just, again, fun for a writer to put all that stuff together. But it, but definitely, I went for soap opera in there. Um, it seemed like, you know, a couple that gets married and moved to the suburbs, that just seems like a setup for a soap opera. And, and you know, I've always said that comics... Marvel comics certainly are basically soap operas for boys. I mean, you know, all the, all the relationships, all the, you know, the, you know, walking away alone because your girlfriend is, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. Um, so I leaned heavily into the soap opera aspects of it. And, 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 you know, I was on my way toward making, toward breaking uh, Crystal and Quicksilver up. And as I say, right at the end of my time there, that time, <clears throat> It, it had become micromanagement city. And, and by that time, I mean, that was, then they decided, no, we're going to change all that and, 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 and do it, which I never quite, I never really understood because I don't know why you would want to make Quicksilver a nice guy. I mean, he never was. So what, what did you gain by that? You gained one more superhero that you might be able to use, but you lost this, this unique, character who was a superhero but really an asshole you know now, i i may have my credits mixed up and i apologize but you used him if i'm recalling as a villain in your west coast avengers and yeah. fantastic four runs as well yeah. so he he was a villain for a while yeah yeah um but like my last west coast avengers issue they sort of threw out the last half of my script and rewrote it um to make mantis do whatever they wanted Mantis to do, but there was, but but in in part of all that, they rewrote most of my Quicksilver stuff at that time, and that was, you know, you guys have your own experience and time with the company. My time, I came in when it was the Marvel age, the House of Ideas, you know, all that stuff, and I really felt that '89 um, when they uh, started changing things from the top down, that that was kind of the end of the Marvel age. In my, in my opinion, um, it went, you know, obviously it went on from there, but you know, they, they went bankrupt. They, you know, they, they did all these things that didn't, you know, didn't uh, comport with what Marvel had been. Yeah. Fox and Disney came into it there for a while. There was a lot of things happening. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, before I continue, what questions do you have for Steven? Oh, geez. I guess I'll go back to, uh, you know, that one period you had, I guess you started, what, in 1972? Uh, yeah. 1971, 72, and then you lasted until about, what, 76, when, like, Shooter and uh, then started micromanaging, and then you, you left? Well, I, I, yeah, no, it was Jerry, it was Jerry Conway, actually, oh, who okay. did the micromanagement, and I mm -hmm. left. Then when I came back, Shooter was there, and Shooter, mm -hmm. you know, Shooter was well known for being tough on people, but he never really was tough on me. I think, you know, because I had established myself in a previous incarnation. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, it was DeFalco actually, who was started changing everything after mm -hmm. shoot. So, and I, and I, from what I understand, I think the higher up sort of pushed shooter out so that they could do that. So, I mean, there was all this political stuff going on at that point. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I mean, I left in 76. Yeah. Wow. So that four-year period, I mean, you just, a lot of characters, Shang-Chi, Star-Lord, Mantis, Shuma Gorath. I mean, names are so big now. It was a very prolific period for you. Were there any characters who you created that time that you're surprised haven't become more household names by now? Or that any concepts? Yeah, that, that have not like uh, become mainstream or like more known in pop culture or movies, uh, storylines or characters? Well, I, I, no, I was surprised that Star-Lord did become well-known, mm -hmm. um, but, um, and I've said, you know, I mean, I, 
I generally like the Marvel movies, uh, mm. you know, but I'm allowed to have my own opinion. And I've said that I wish Mantis had been treated a little better mm-hmm. in the movies. Um, but uh, I can't, you know, I can't think of anybody who, you know, I mean, I wrote Captain America, Avengers, Doctor Strange, Hulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've, I'm not sure that I wrote anybody except Star-Lord, who probably wasn't. Yeah, yeah. He laid, uh, he laid dormant for quite a few decades before he... Uh, he did, yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I do like what they did with him, you know? Yeah. Um, so. No, I'm a James Gunn fan. I like I like Suicide Squad, if I may say. Um, but uh, I like James Gunn's sensibilities. But I wish, yeah. he, wish he'd done better by Mantis. Did you watch WandaVision? Yes, sure. What did you think of it? I liked it. I mean, it was fun because it was, you know, basically her fantasy was our series, right? Mm-hmm. Let's get married and move to the suburbs and have kids. And 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 they brought in her brother. They brought in, I think, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They brought in her brother, except it was a fantasy. Uh, the kids even, you know, which was a surprise to me since John Byrne had killed them off immediately after I left. Um, and just, you know, overall, it was, a, it was a well put together thing, but I was, you know, I was pleased, you know, that they based it on, on Rich and Mai's run, you know? What was that like to have uh, John Byrne undo so much of what you had done with those characters? That probably well, rough. You know, I said before, once you quit, somebody else takes over, and that's you know, and that's true. Um, Burn was always prickly, you know, um, and I mean for everybody about anything, and and um, he had a he did have a thing of like now that I'm here, everything's different, which was not my approach at all. My approach was always now that I'm here, I'm going to take it and and run with it, you know. But I, the only reason I'm doing this series is because it got this far. So I, who am I to say, throw all that out the window and start over? But Byrne liked to do that, and and um, so no, wasn't I wasn't a fan. Uh, I would say in general, I wasn't a fan of turning the vision into a toaster. I wasn't in, in fan of you know having uh, having Wanda become a supervillain. You know, I mean all that stuff. Uh, as a fan, didn't like it. As a sensible person, I'm not doing the book. Other people are doing the book. Books apparently sold. So, you know, it's like, okay, you know, that's that was a decision I wouldn't have made, but that, you know, but they did what they did. And, and you know, House of, House of M and all that stuff. I mean, uh, that was all popular. So, yeah good for them you know it's such an interesting concept to spend so much time cultivating and loving these characters and crafting them into something and then passing them on to someone else who who has a different story or agenda Uh, these characters lives have have taken over the beast as an example is the leader of the mutant cia now uh doing all kinds of things in the books that are pretty dark it's it's really interesting to see the the evolution of these characters based on that concept well times change you know i mean the world changes around people are drawing off different influences uh certainly the 70s was a much more sunny and optimistic time than we've seen lately um Right. So you, you, you run with, with all of that. Um, uh, but again, I mean, I understood that from the start. And so it was never a surprise to me. I, I will say, and I've talked to other writers about this. Once you have devoted yourself to the lives of characters, it is difficult for a lot of people, including me to like, continue to read the series after that because the next guy is doing his own thing and he should be. But at the same time, I may not be, you know, I may, I'm sitting there going, that's not how he operates. You know, that's not, I know, I know how Captain America works and this is not, you know, this is not it or, or whatever. Um, So uh, you, at least for me, I, you know, I do, think deeply into all of these characters um i really try to 
you know, put my head into every single one of them and do the best I can with them. And then, you know, yes, I'm going to pass it on, but I may not necessarily um, follow it, you know, well, immediately and, thereafter. And we see some characters get their origins in one place, for example. And just to note, one, one of Wanda's twins has again become a queer icon as, as the character Wiccan, who is now married to Hulkling and uh, serving in a, in, a, in a position as leadership of an of a alien civilization, you know. He's a he's a big character and a big queer icon, which is a, such. Speaking as a queer person, you didn't see a lot of that representation in comics until just in the last couple of years. So it's a really right. big deal. But you go back right. and see these characters get their origins in a particular place. Yeah. Uh, we we asked Roy Thomas last time. You know, what was it like to watch Iceman come out as gay? And he goes, "To me, he's not gay. I wrote him as straight. Somebody else changed him later." And I think it's that same concept of someone else takes over and puts something there. Yeah, I mean, I would say I guess my reaction to that, if, you know, to a situation like that is, you know, that's not the character that I wrote, but I do understand why people, you know, I mean, there is a lot more queer representation just in the world now. And so it makes sense, you know, um, I suppose if I were to choose, I would say, you know, taking an established character and suddenly going, oh, by the way, I'm gay. That, I find that to be, oh, okay. But an unestablished character or a character you're establishing, um, sure. I mean, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, and Roy had much of the same thought. But in a similar way, it's uh, someone saying, well, actually, Quicksilver's not a supervillain. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> Uh, you have an iconic scene in the Vision Scarlet Witch series where it, it made me laugh out loud upon my reread, where the Toad is coming after Wanda and wants her so badly. And when he finally corners her and sees she's pregnant, he's like, <laughs> and runs away. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a fantastic scene. And his giant Toad armor uh, made me laugh really hard. Well, it's hard to make the Toad threatening unless you, you know, unless you bulk him up. <laughs> now, uh, who are some of your favorite people to work with across your career? You mean artists? Mm -hmm. Artists or other writers? Well, um, the, when I got into the bullpen, it was a bullpen. It was what they said it was in, in, in all those bullpen bulletins. A bunch of people having a good time hanging out together and doing this. In those days, you physically had to go to New York. Um, there was no FedEx. There was no internet. So the basic requirement to work in comics was to be in New York. Um, there were a couple people who were big enough who didn't have to do that. John Severin was out in Denver, Kirby moved to California, but uh, Sal Buscema was in Washington, D.C. But otherwise, pretty much everybody was in the New York metro area. And so you got to know everybody, right? I mean, the, that was the cool thing as a guy just coming in, wanting to get into comics. I got to know Wally Wood. I got to know Bill Everett, guys who were, you know, uh, icons from 30 years earlier, uh, were all part of the, were all part of the crowd. So, uh, you know, I mean, I made a lot of friends in, in there as on a social level, <clears throat> as far as working with people, um, Neil Adams, of course, um, sitting next to me in the office was John Ramita Sr. and uh, Herb Trempe. And I did the Hulk with Herb. Um, so, I mean, that was, we were friends and we were um, collaborators. Um, I loved working with Sal Buscema. Um, it was one thing for Roy to say, you can do anything you want to do. It's another thing to have an artist who can do anything you want to do because there are some artists who can't draw hands or they can't draw horses or they can't do this. So you, you know, you know, don't give them <laughs> anything with a cowboy in it, you know, whatever. But, but Sal was, you know, always sort of in the shadow of his big brother, but I liked Sal better than his big brother, actually. I mean, I liked John's artwork fine, but I liked Sal was just, game for anything you could yeah, yeah. just say do this and sal would do it great you know um marshall rogers of course on batman um but i mean again i 
I had fun doing most everything, you know, including that, doing comics in general. So I liked working with Dick Dillon on Justice League. Dick Dillon by that time was a dinosaur, but I thought he's the Justice League dinosaur. If I'm going to do Justice League, I want to do it with Dick Dillon. Um, I'm sure I'm blanking half a dozen other people who I no, really, you know, but I mean, it, I, it's easier for me to think, you know, who didn't I like working with? There was a guy, and I'm not going to name a name, but I mean, there were there was a guy who could only draw all of his people look sort of like statues. They didn't look human. They looked, you know, like they weighed 500. And I, you know, I never could get behind that. But I mean, you know, that was that was rare actually sure, to sure. deal with somebody who couldn't couldn't hold up his end of the of the thing. So. Um, I think because I had started out to be an artist, I didn't, I don't know if I mentioned that, but it was the art that drew me into comics. It was Dick Sprang doing Batman in the fifties with his strange perspectives and all this stuff. Yeah. That was one of the many guys then that, so it was art that, that got me interested in this. And, and I worked with Neil Adams as an art assistant and so on and so forth. Then when I became a writer, I just filled up all my time with writing. But I think because I had been an artist, you know, I think I was a good writer for comics because I could see how it could be drawn. Um, I, I didn't expect them to draw it exactly the way I saw it, of course, but I mean, I knew that it could be drawn. I wasn't asking for anything that, that a guy would go, well, how, how am I supposed to do this? And so I think I had, I, I was never a writer artist like Frank Miller or John Byrne. Um, but I was a writer, parentheses artist, you know? I mean, I could see it. I knew what I, I knew what I was asking for. And, and so I, I think I was good to work with as, you know, from an artistic standpoint. So, you know, I got along well with my artists uh, and, and it was always fun for me because I, you know, when I did write the stories, I would visualize what it would look like. And then it was fun for me to come back and see what Al Milgram thought it looked like, or, you know, Marshall Rogers thought it looked like, or, you know, Sal or whoever. Um, the bottom line is I had a good time <laughs> doing this. You drew a couple comics back in the 50s too, didn't you? Not in the 50s. No, no. But I mean, yes. I did not mean the 50s. I, I, I was thinking romance comics and my brain went 50s, but you drew a couple of romance comics. Yeah, right? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I apologize did. for that flub. I'll edit that out in the early 70s, though. It's all right. Um, yeah, uh, that was, again, I was I was writing some romance books, but I also was still drawing. You know, I did a couple of romance books. Um, I have a, a romance story that Johnny Romita inked that looks really good because Johnny Ruby, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, I was, you know, I was still, um, still doing art in that first six months, whatever, when I was writing and doing art, but then, um, I mean, the thing with Marvel in those days, I think we got paid, I think I got paid $110 a week. Uh, for being on staff, but you were supposed to supplement that with freelance work. <clears throat> and so you could have all the freelance work you wanted. Um, the page rates in those days, I got paid 10 bucks a page for my first story or first beast, I don't know. And it immediately jumped to 13 after that. People in comics today will know that that's one-tenth, maybe. One-tenth of what it got up to. I think it's been coming down <laughs> for a while. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, so you took as much freelance work as you could take. <clears throat> and once Roy decided that he liked what I was doing, he offered me as much freelance work as I could take. I mean, I went over and wrote Vampirella at Warren because I didn't have enough work at Marvel, but, you know, fairly quickly I had to give up Vampirella because, you know, I got more Marvel work. <clears throat> How much did your uh, training as a psychologist or your experience as a soldier influence your writing? Those life experiences, uh, what was that like? Well, I think the psychology, the reason I studied psychology was I was interested in why people 
do what they do? Why, you know, I wanted an explanation for human reality, which was the kind of thing you think of when you don't know any better. Um, and, uh, but I've always had the ability to sort of put myself, go live in another headspace, you know, without becoming a psychotic ax murderer. I can, <laughs> you know, I can write the Joker. I can write a crazy person. I can write, you know, the Scarlet Witch. I can do, you know, so that's my, that's the way my mind works. And so that's why I studied psychology and that's why I write characters, you know, all that stuff is the same answer. I'm a, um, I'm a, I'm a mental health professional in my day job. So I'm thinking, yeah, I can, uh, Oh, I know the Joker. Yep. I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, um, and, uh, the soldier, I don't know. I mean, I introduced a conscientious objector into captain America at one point. Uh, but I, you know, I, I can't say that that influenced me much, but it was a, you know, but it was a life experience just in, you know, having to be a soldier, having to, you know, get up at a certain time, march around, do things, blah, blah, blah. Um, not an experience that I would have chosen, um, but I went through it. I went through it. So it was, you know, it was part of just part of growing up. Yeah. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Uh, Anthony, as we start to wrap up, do you have any concluding mm -hmm. questions for Steve? Uh, I guess just as a follow-up to a comment he made earlier, uh, you mentioned being at the Shang-Chi premiere in Los Angeles. Uh, they used quite a few of your characters, like we mentioned, uh, Mantis, Star-Lord, uh, Shuma Gorath will be appearing in the next Doctor Strange movie, not as Shuma Gorath, but I think they're renaming him Gargantos to avoid a legal implication with uh, Robert E. Howard's estate. But uh, do you always get notified ahead of time when they use your characters or storylines, or is it something that sometimes you're watching this is a, a surprise? Um, yeah, I don't know any more about the movies than you do, just mm. from what you know you read online and stuff. They're they're mm. very good about crediting where they get their ideas. Mm -hmm. um, there's royalties involved if they use your characters, you know, but they don't consult. Um, right. um, I, so every time I go to one of those movies, I mean, and again, they invite me to the premiere. I mean, there's, there's all, you know, all the trappings of that stuff, but until I see the movie, I don't know what's in the movie. Um, right. um yeah, I mean, that's it. That's all. I know. Yeah. Uh, uh, as we are wrapping up here, is there anything we have uh, that we can look forward to coming out from you, Steve? Or what are you currently working on? Well, I'm, you know, I'm sort of, I continue to write because, you know, writing is just something you can do. Um, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it or anything. Um, so I've written a couple. I've, <laughs> I was talking earlier about, challenges. Um, I wanted to do a series basically about a small town where two people in it become superheroes, but I don't tell you which two of the many characters they are. And so in order to make that work, I needed for every character to have a storyline, um, to be an interesting character in and of him or herself. Um, and then two of them have extra storyline that we don't know about. Um, and so I ended up with 20 characters, more than 20 characters actually, but 20 main characters who all have stories. And when I got done with that, it was 420 pages long. <laughs> and it was only then really that I said, nobody's going to draw this. Nobody will ever draw 420 pages. Unless, you know, I become such an icon that, you know, 10 years after I'm dead, people go, oh, the undiscovered, you know. Um, but uh, so, you know, but it was it was fun to write. It was, you know, it was a challenge. Can I make this happen? Can I have 20 stories all progressing, but all interacting and all coming out, you know? It, and so I had a good time, but it, but that didn't that's not probably ever going to appear. Um, I've got another series that I'm working on, um, set on the moon, about all I want to say about it. Um, and then I've, 
you know, I've also been asked to write a screenplay and, and, you know, we'll see what happens there. So, um, and I've, you know, I've been around Hollywood long enough to know that until it actually hits the screen, you can't actually count on it. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to oversell that, but I'm, you know, I'm writing things that are of interest to me. Um, and I said all along, we'll see whether anybody else is interested and only belatedly that I discover I can't even get it drawn, you know, I mean, it's, so it's, it's, I'm not thinking so much in terms, not thinking at all in terms of publication now, sorry to say for people who might want to see some, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of, is this interesting? And then we'll see if we can do something with it, you know, so. Where, where can people find updates about things you may have coming out? Uh, on my website, which is steveenglehart.com, all one word, pretty simple. Easy enough. Um, it doesn't, you know, these projects, you know, it started during the pandemic. I mean, that I had been, I'd been screwing around with my 20 character series um, for years. I mean, just like, oh yeah, you know, but, but it's so big. It's so, you know, it's like, if you really do this, you really have to commit to this. And how can I commit to this? Cause I have a life, but came the pandemic. <laughs> like, well, I got nothing else to do. So let's, let's, let's make that happen. So it turned out to be fun, a good way to spend my time during a pandemic. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that um, there are royalties for this kind of stuff that I did, you know, the stuff that I did with no expectation of ever, you know, beyond this month, 50 years later, Mr. Disney slips me some money every once in a while. So it's like, okay, well, you know, that, that certainly um, makes things easier um, and, and allows me to sort of do what, do what I want to do rather than, you know, having to worry about, can I sell this or something? So I'm, I'm, I'm an unreliable narrator here. <laughs> you should try to adopt, you should try to adopt that 420 page comic strip to a screenplay or a Netflix series or something like that. Maybe it would be a better medium for it. It might be, um, you know, I've thought about that. Uh, I, it is at the moment, it is 70, 60 page graphic albums or sorry, mm. seven 60 page wow. graphic albums. Mm. Um, the only way you can tell a story about 20 people is to have 60 pages, you know, <laughs> sure. uh, in, in a, in a segment. And that's only a segment. There's it, it's seven days that we go through this. Um, so, uh, you know, I haven't, haven't really thought about how I would turn a 60 page comic script into something that Netflix could make. You know, would that be a one hour episode? Would that be a five hour episode? I have no idea. Right. You know, uh, but yeah, you know, um, it is, it's, it's, I think it's a really good, I like the story and I hope that, you know, it's, it's too bad that it's, I can't go anywhere with it at this point, but maybe I'll figure out a way to do that. Mm -hmm. Steve, I was born in 1978, so I know a lot of your iconic stories came around before I was even born, but I had a pretty troubled teen and childhood years, and comic books for me were always an enormous way to escape reality and find a place to go to in my head. And as an adult, they've become something that are just beloved to me, that I can pass on to my own children now. Uh, I have always writ or read your work, particularly, again, Defenders, Doctor Strange, your Avengers runs. Uh, as as just iconic stories that set up everything that has come to follow. And it was very apparent, although I just met you now, that you put so much love and craft and work into these characters and these storylines. Uh, hearing you talk today, it's so clear to me that you're finding ways to write what you love and what inspires you and find, finding ways to keep yourself uh, challenged. Uh, you're, you're an absolute class act. So thank you for all of the incredible work you've done for these, this industry and for these characters that we love so much. Um, it really means the world to have spent this time talking to you and getting to know you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, Anthony, same question. Where can people find you or is there anything that we should look forward to you? Uh, for you? Uh, I, I haven't worked for Marvel's for uh, probably 12 years now. Uh, I have in the past year noticed a few of the ideas and that time that I have uh 
that I did work that I did freelance for Marvel or being used in some of the Netflix or uh, the uh, Disney Plus series and the movies, other things like novels and uh, books. I created a, a Twitter page just uh, at Anthony Fellini, uh, just to list some of the contributions that have like and how they've evolved since I introduced them in 2006 and 2011. So if anyone's interested, uh, some cool stuff there. Do you really, get uh, a surprising. Do you get a special thanks in the credits? I don't. No, it's just stuff that's out there in the ether now. You know, it's on Wikipedia pages and stuff like that that people pull from, and they might not even know the source that it's coming from. But I see it, I'm like, oh, that's from the book I wrote in 2008. You know, this concept or this this team or this character name. So they it's little little bits and pieces here and there. Not like a giant, not like a giant uh, one division based entirely on something I did, but little pieces here and there. So just insignificant things. Okay. Well, gentlemen, uh, Anthony, send me a link there, and I'll ma I'll make sure to post sure. the link, and I'll I'll, mm -hmm. I'll I'll link your website as well. Uh, everybody, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Um, the next episode of Gray Malkin, uh, we're going to be hosting a trial for Quicksilver, which is so fun because we got to ask Steve about some of his more asshole moments across the years. But we're going to put him on trial. Uh, after that, we uh, we have an interview with the uh, the writer Jed McKay coming up. Uh, in a couple of episodes from now. So, uh, Steve, thank you again for spending this time with us. Uh, what an absolute honor. Uh, we will see you guys back here next time on uh, Gray Malkin Lane.